So go ahead and grab your Bibles with me. We want to just continue in that spirit of worship this morning by opening up God's Word together and hearing uh, from Him. And so we're going to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. We have been uh, faithfully stepping through the book of Nehemiah this fall, just piece by piece, uh, chapter by chapter, to hear uh, from the Lord what it looks like to take new ground for His glory and how we do that together with Him as a church and as individuals and I hope this has been as helpful for you as it has been for me, as I've been studying and preparing. And um, today we're going to look at another chapter of that. Chapter 5 is going to talk about how to grow through generosity, how to take new ground through generosity. Um, I want to share, start with a story. I've shared this actually before, and uh, so it might be familiar to you, but um, it's about Pastor Rick Warren. Many of you probably know who he is, pastor of a fairly large church out in California, pretty well-known author as well. And, uh, but there's a story about Pastor Rick, that when he was 19 years old, he was a college student, um, and like most college students, uh, he was in debt. It like, just kind of comes with the territory. Um, and at the time, he said that he owed $500 to his school, and he owed $10 to a friend. And he went to his bank account, and he looked, and he had $50 in the bank. And he prayed, and he said, God, I, got, you know, I owe this money, and I've only got $50, what am I supposed to do? And he felt impressed by the Lord to give that $50 to the Lord. And so he goes to church that week, and he gives his $50 to God, and he says, all right, God, I'm trusting you here, and he gave him uh, in the offering, and so then right after that, he gets a call uh, from a local church asking him to come and do a youth event, speak at a youth event for their church, and so he accepted, and he goes, and he does that, and at the end of the event, they took a love offering for him, and it came out to $561. He says, I immediately, immediately went back to school, I gave $500 to the school, I gave $10 to my friend, and I gave the remaining $51 back to God as a tithe on what he had given me. He said, I was was still poor, but I wasn't in debt. And so (laughs) that was a a good move. Um, And if you you know Pastor Rick's story, he's um, been very blessed by the Lord over the years through his book writing um, and has made millions of dollars. So he's definitely not poor or in debt anymore, Um, but he has continued to be generous. Um, off of his book sales, he has actually reimbursed his church for every dollar of salary that they've ever paid him. Um, and he now lives on 10% of his income, and he gives the other 90% back to the Lord. And what that shows me is that generosity isn't a money thing. It's a heart thing. Right? No matter how little you have, no matter how much you have, generosity is about a heart attitude towards the Lord. And that as he enables us, that we're able to be generous back to him, and um, so we're going to look at that today, and I, I, I love that God's word reminds us that just like Pastor Rick has learned, um, that, that he loves to bless his children who are generous. Proverbs eleven twenty four says, one gives freely and yet grows all the richer. Another one withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. And it's a great promise from the Lord remember as we think about generosity today. But I want you to see specifically from Nehemiah chapter 5, this reality that God is repelled by my greed, but remembers my generosity. God is repelled by my greed, but remembers my generosity. Let me see if I can show you that today in the text. And I I think I'm going to divide it basically into two sections today. The first part, we're going to talk about why God is repelled by greed. The second half is why does God remember generosity and what type of generosity does God remember And the big answer to the first question, why is God repelled by greed, is very simple. 
It's because it's contrary to his nature. Greed is the exact opposite of the character of God. And so for that reason, he is repelled by it. And I think we even see specifically in this passage three specific ways, three specific reasons why that is true. So let's look at those together. Look at verse 1. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards, and now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. The first reason that God's repelled by greed is because greed promotes injustice. It says here that the people, there was a great outcry. That they're, they're crying out saying, please help us. We need grain, right? We, we're, we're trying to keep alive here. Like literally the Jewish people were suffering and starving to death because of greed. And this was not a new problem. This wasn't something that just kind of happened overnight when Nehemiah showed up. This, this has been building for years, right? This is the culmination of years and years of certain people in the, in the community being taken advantage of by those who were in power or those who had more wealth in the area. And when Nehemiah came and he starts building this wall and he demands that everybody come and help on the wall, that means they can no longer work in their fields because now they're working on the wall and they can't get their normal income that they're used to having and it just exasperates the problem that was already there. It's kind of like the last straw that brought them to this outcry of, we can't do this anymore. But notice here it says that the outcry was against, and this is the key part, against their Jewish brothers. They're not crying out against Nehemiah or the king, or the wall, right? They're not blaming it on the new thing because they know that that's not really the problem. The problem is that they have greedy Jewish leaders and wealthy people among them who have been profiting at the expense of their poorer brothers and sisters. They say, we've been, having to, we've been mortgaging our fields because of the famine. So evidently in some time recent past, there was a famine in the land, and in order to, to keep things rolling, they actually had to put their fields and their vineyards up as collateral in order to get a loan and keep things moving, and they now um, did not have what they needed to sustain their families. Because greed oftentimes will exploit the poor in the midst of disasters, because they just don't have the margin to handle it. They go on, they say, we've borrowed money for the king's tax, the Persians were known, like many kings of the day, of taxing their citizens relentlessly in order to pay for government and pay for the military and pay for all that stuff. But the local leaders would even put extra tax on top of the king's tax so they could line their own pockets. And so the poor people are being exorbitantly taxed here so that, they, so that the wealthy leaders can get even more wealth. And greed puts unfair expectations on the poor as well. They say it's come to the point where we're even having to force our sons and our daughters to be slaves. This was a very common practice during this time that if you got into debt, the way you had to fix it was you had to work it off. If you couldn't pay it back, you had to go work for somebody until you paid off your debt. And if you couldn't do it, then the whole family had to come and work. And they would oftentimes put their sons and their daughters into these kind of work-slave relationships. Now, they were supposed to be temporary, right? And the Jewish, the Jewish law did allow for debt slavery. But they said every seven years... All debts are raised and all slaves are set free. That was called the sabbatical year. But evidently that's not happening here. 
because it says some of their daughters are even being given away, and this is, it gives a more permanent feel in the original Hebrew there, um, as in, actually, the, the daughters were being taken as wives or concubines um, because of the debt that these people owed. Greed oftentimes traps the poor with no options because of a lack of margin. They even say it here, it says, not in our, it's not in our power to help it because other men have our fields. They don't even have an ability to make a living anymore because they've lost so much to greed. And I think this is really, when we think about greed, we try to put a definition on that. I think biblically, here's the way I would, I would phrase it. Greed profits at the detriment of others. That's the key. Greed is when I'm profiting at the detriment of other people. You've heard the saying, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, right? That's exactly what was happening here in Jerusalem at this time. And the people just can't, they can't do it anymore. So they're crying out to Nehemiah. And this points to the idea of economic injustice. And we've seen examples of this even in our own country, both past and present, right? So obviously we can point back to slavery uh, was using others in order to advance economically um, for those who were in, in, you know, controlling things at that time. You have even past that, you had a season where our country was struggling with child labor because uh, the adults couldn't make enough money due to wages and they were having to send their kids to work to make ends meet. Um, and we had to deal with that as a country and with laws. And then even past that, you even had just underpaid workers where that's where unions sprung up to fight for equal wages and better pay and those kind of thing. And, and so we've seen this historically through our country in different areas and different ways. But I would say there's even some of it still today. When you look at over the last 10, 15 years, the wage disparity in our country continues to grow further and further. In other words, CEOs and presidents and leaders of companies are making more and more, while frontline workers are making less and less. We have entire industries in our country that are built on high interest loans and penalties where they're basically just keeping people in debt so they can keep making money on the interest of what they owe. We have examples of uneven taxation in various ways. We have all these things where we still see economic justice happening, and the reason it's happening is because of greed. I mean, it's very simple. When you boil it all down to the end, it's because we as humans oftentimes have greedy, sinful hearts, and we're always wanting more for us, even if it's at the detriment of someone else. And it repels God, because it's against who he is. So first of all, greed is, promotes injustice. There's a second reason here. Look at verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, and I took counsel with myself, this is Nehemiah talking, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we as far as we are able have brought, bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that, you, that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. The second reason God is repelled by greed is because it promotes selfishness. Greed promotes selfishness. Nehemiah hears this outcry and he says, I was very angry. And let's just take a second here to pause on that because there is such thing in the Bible as righteous anger. I think this is a good example of it. Okay? Um, he's angry because he has a love for the people and he hates to see what's happening to them. Right? That they're being treated in this unfair, un, um, unloving way. 
And this points to Ephesians 4.26, where Paul says to be angry and do not sin. Now, some of us, we didn't even know that was an option, right? Like, anger comes and sin just flows. But there is an opportunity where you can be angry over something and it not lead to sin. Um, we actually see examples in the New Testament where Jesus is angry in the temple because they're greedily turning it into a money-making scheme rather than it being a place of prayer, and he drives the money changers out. We see in, with Paul in 2 Corinthians where he's angry over the recurring sin that's happening in the Corinthian church, and he's calling them to, to bear on it. And so here Nehemiah is in this manner of righteous anger, but notice what he does. When he gets angry, he says, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the people. He doesn't do anything rash. He doesn't get out of control. He doesn't start, you know, lashing out on people. But he is moved to set things right. And he brings charges here, it says, against the nobles and the officials. So these would have been the, the top leaders in Jerusalem. These would have been the guys that he was partnering with to get the wall built. These would have been probably his friends, because he was probably in that upper echelon of leadership in his own ways. And so he had to bring charges against his own guys, but this was the right thing to do. And so Nehemiah steps out and he does it. He says, you are exacting interest from your brothers. Now this is the major charge that Nehemiah brings because it was against Old Testament Jewish law to charge interest to other Jews. Okay? They could charge interest to outsiders, to foreigners, to other you know, nations or peoples, but to their Jewish brothers and sisters, they were not allowed to charge interest. They could loan money, but not at interest. And here he says, you're exacting interest from your brothers. You're profiting from your brother's misfortune. And you're prioritizing yourself over them. He's pointing to their selfishness here. He says, furthermore, and this is the kicker, he says, we just bought back our brothers from slavery. So we, we know that some of the Jews ended up in slavery possibly because they were in debt to other people in other nations. Or it could be because of the exile or a combination of both. He says, but we've, we've bought them back. We've freed them from slavery. We've brought them back to the homeland. And now you're selling them to each other and enslaving them again. And it's illegal and it's immoral. Stop it. <laughs> and then I love this. It says, they could not find a word to say. That's because this kind of selfish greed has no excuse among God's people. Just flat out. There's nothing I can say to justify that. Selfish greed ignores the selflessness of our God. I want you to think about maybe the, the most maybe the most well-known verse in all of the Bible, John 3:16. Right? It says that for God so loved the world that he at the heart of our faith at the heart of the gospel at the heart of everything that we are is the fact that we follow a God who is a giver that he gave not just money he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life when we were in desperate need when we were stuck in our sin and could not save ourselves and could not help ourselves when we were headed to hell for eternity and we had nothing to give. God came and he gave to us salvation through his son. 
his only son came to live a perfect life, knowing that at the end of that, he would die for our sins. That he would go to the cross and take our shame and our punishment and what we owed to God, and he would pay it for us. He would die in our place. And he went to the grave, and three days later, he rose back to life. He conquered sin, and he conquered death, and he turned around, and he gave to us again the opportunity to be saved from that sin if we will turn from it and put our faith in Jesus alone. At the heart of everything we believe is that we have a God that is a giver. God is a giver, and he seeks givers, not takers. God does not do selfish greed. He calls us to be generous people. So God is repelled by greed because it promotes injustice, because it promotes selfishness. And then there's a third thing. Look at verse 9. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of, of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. The third thing is this. Greed promotes disobedience. Greed promotes disobedience. Nehemiah just says, he says, this thing you're doing is not good. Right? Greed is not good because it opposes God's word. It opposes his character. Greed is sin. So Nehemiah says, this is not good. You should be walking in the fear of God. And I want to just hit that phrase again because we see that phrase over and over and over again in the book of Nehemiah. And it's so important. The fear of God simply means to live in awe and devotion to who God is. And in love and kindness and integrity towards his people, towards men. Nehemiah says, if you really love God and you love your fellow brothers and sisters, this is not the way. He's pointing that this is a heart issue for them. This isn't just about the money. It isn't just about the laws. It's about a heart issue. Because when I have a heart that fears God, that casts out greed. He says, and furthermore, we, we're now bringing upon the taunts of our enemies. He's basically saying, this is a bad witness. Because right? when they look at you and they see that you're greedy and that you're acting like this, they assume that that's what your God is like. And guess what? Our God is not greedy in any way. He says, moreover, I and my brothers are lending. See, greed creates a sinful culture that infects everyone. Nehemiah shows up. He's only there for a little bit, and he's already in on the lending to his brothers and sisters. Now, he's not, we don't have any evidence here that he's actually exacting interest like some of them were. But he notices here that lending is what he's doing, but lending is not what's necessary. Giving is what's needed in this season. The people are needing help. They're needing generosity, not just another loan that they have to pay back. Greed is the antithesis of following Christ. Because greed is disobedience to Christ. So, I always try to, when I'm working through these things, I just try to make this, I guess, practical for you as possible. I know what some of you are thinking. Like, okay, Micah, I hear you. That's great. I'm totally with you. I don't have any slaves. 
Um, I'm not a CEO controlling somebody's wages. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not doing, like, that's, I'm good on all that. But what if there's smaller ways that maybe this creeps into our lives? Let me give you one example. So I've grown up in church my whole life. I don't know if this is still a thing. I know it was when I was younger. I think it probably is. But um, if you've grown up around church, you might know this. Restaurant workers hate church people. Do you know this? Because historically, here's what happens. We have our Sunday services. We have our Wednesday services. And then everybody, like, oh, let's go, let's go out and hang out. And so they, everybody, you have, like, this big group of people that shows up at the restaurant. They take up all the tables. They order, like, one hamburger to split in 20 waters. And they're, like, and, and they're unjustly, unfairly taking up all the restaurant's resources without doing their fair part of covering the cost through buying adequate food and drink. And it gives a bad taste for who we are and who our God is. The same thing is, is true with waiters and waitresses. If you ask them, who are some of your worst tippers? Oftentimes they'll tell you. Church people. Christians. Now, listen, I understand the whole argument that tips are supposed to encourage good service and it's, it's a reward and all that kind of stuff. And when they started, that was true. But we do know today that waiters and waitresses get paid less because the restaurant is banking on the fact that part of their income is coming from their tips. It's now baked into the equation. And most of them are already on tight incomes as it is. So even if it's a bad service, when we slight them a tip or when we skirt a tip because we think they don't deserve it, how often do you think they're really walking away going, man, I guess I should be a better waiter? <laughs> no. What are they thinking? Man, those Christians are really greedy. If that's what their God's like, psh, I don't want none of that. Is it really worth risking our witness of who our God is for a couple bucks? Now, again, I'm not trying to harp on anybody here. I'm just, this is something I've seen, I've observed, I've heard. There, there's lots of other examples of little ways that we could be generous and make such a great name for our God in small ways instead of always maybe holding on to things so tightly. Christians should be the most giving people because we have the most giving Savior. God is repelled by my greed. That's the first thing you got to walk away with this morning. Thankfully, there's more. Nehemiah brings us around to the other side. So now I want to look at the rest of the chapter and look at three levels of generosity that God remembers. Three levels of generosity God remembers. Go with me to verse 10 again. It says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest and return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his, this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So the first level of generosity that God remembers is obedient 
generosity. Nehemiah says we need to abandon this exacting of interest. Right? In other words, obey God's word. God told you not to do this, so stop doing it. And return to them their fields and return to them the percentage of interest that you've been charging them. Give it back now. Don't wait till the sabbatical year. Don't wait because it was taken in sin, so get it right ASAP. There's an urgency here. And the people respond, yes, we will restore. We will give back everything. They see the problem. And, and I love this illustration because we've said this before here at Harvest, and we need to be reminded sometimes that delayed obedience is disobedience. Right? When we see sin, when we see problems, when we see something happening in our lives, we need to get it right as quickly as possible with the Lord. So they say, yes, we will restore everything. We'll give it all back. And then Nehemiah does this great like Old Testament prophet thing where he uses this visual where he takes it, just imagine he has like on this big tunic or gown or whatever, and he shakes it out like this. And he's like, may God shake out every man who does not do this. And he's trying to drive home to them this idea of, listen, sin has consequences. It does. And when we walk in disobedience to God, we will suffer those consequences. So the people respond. They say, amen. Praise the Lord, right? They, 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 their hearts are changing. They're seeing their disobedience. They're seeing their sin. They're repenting. They're changing. They're giving the money back. They're finding a new fear of God. They're finding worship. Because Generosity, when it really comes down to it, is a heart of worship unto the Lord. That's always the primary motivation for obedient generosity. Worship. Not obligation, not guilt, not I have to, but because I love the Lord, I'm going to walk in obedient generosity. So again, just real practically for us today, what does obedient generosity look like? This first level, what's that look like for us? And we believe here at Harvest that obedient generosity for Christians today is tithing. Okay? So let me kind of just walk you through because this is one of those Old Testament things that we believe still, still carries weight today. Let me show you why. So five biblical facts about tithing. Real quickly here. Number one, tithing means a tenth. That's literally the definition of the word. It means a tenth of what I earn, what I get, I give back to God. And the word tithe is used 41 times uh, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Talking about that this first 10% of my income goes to God. That's the obedience that he asks us to walk in and, and generosity. Second thing about tithing, number two, a tithe is symbolic of God's ownership of everything. Okay? So the reason he asks us to give 10% back is because God owns it all, and he wants us to remember that and recognize that. Everything that you have is God's. He owns 100%. You just get to borrow it and steward it for now. But it's all his. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything belongs to God. But then I love this passage in, in second, or I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles 29.14. David is praying and he says this. He says, But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. When we give our tithe, when we give our 
we're not giving God our money. You understand this? We're giving God his money. And it's reminding us, and it's recognizing with him that he owns all of it. Number three, a tithe is off the top. In other words, it comes first. Right? Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. So that first 10%, that first fruits that I'm giving to God is off the top. Before Washington, before Jeff City, before my health benefits, before my dues, before my pension, before all of it, gross income, God gets 10%. That's what he calls us to do in obedience. Number four, tithing is an enduring spiritual principle. When we look in in the Old Testament, tithing actually predates the Jewish law. So there's stuff in the, in the law about tithing, but we actually see tithing is put in place long before the law comes into being. Genesis 14, 18 through 20, Abraham gives a tithe unto the Lord long before Moses and the law ever existed. We see this idea of first fruits going to the Lord, even all the way back to Cain and Abel. Right? This is an enduring spiritual principle. It's kind of like Sabbath. Right? Sabbath was established at creation, right? God rested on the seventh day. And that's what Moses roots Sabbath in. And so it was part of the law, but it also goes past the law. We're still called the Sabbath. It's this enduring principle that God set up from the beginning of creation. In the same way. First things always belong to God. And then number five, a tithe is a starting place for New Testament giving. When we look back through church history, when we go all the way back in church history documents, all the way back to the first church, they all followed in tithing. This was a normal principle in the church for thousands of years now. And even for those who would argue, well, tithing's Old Testament, it doesn't say anything about that in the New Testament, we're just supposed to be generous in the New Testament. Okay, even if that's what you feel, and that's fine, I can respect that. Let me ask you this question. In the New Testament is less than the Old Testament. Right? The Old Testament says, Jesus says, if you even hate your brother, it's murder. He raises the bar, right? The Old Testament says, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, if you even look, it's committing adultery. He raises the bar. The New Testament never lowers the bar. So let's just go off that for a second. All right, so let's say the Old Testament tithe was 10%, which was actually, if you do a whole study of giving in the Old Testament, the Jews were actually supposed to give about 30% across multiple offerings, but we'll just stick with the 10, okay? So tithe was 10%. So if that's the starting, if that's what the Old Testament said, then the New Testament says be generous. That's going to mean 10% plus, not less. So at a minimum, tithing, 10%, is the starting place for New Testament giving. That's where God asks us to step out in obedience and give to him. Um, I oftentimes use the analogy, um, I think it's just kind of a helpful visual, is think about generosity with God as a highway. Okay? And God is calling his people to be with him, cruising down this highway of generosity. And, and the place where we first merge onto the highway, when we get off the on-ramp and onto that first lane of traffic, that's tithing. Okay? Um, now, for those of us, for maybe you've you know, newly saved or you just don't have a, uh, a habit yet of giving unto the Lord like that, 
And when we first get saved and first start giving to God, and we're going giving, starting from like 0%, <laughs> going from 0% to 10%, that's a big jump, right, when you're not used to that. And, and God totally has grace for that. And so, all right, if you're at zero, then go for two. Go to 2%. And then maybe after a couple months, go to 4%. And then just keep building that up until you can get to that 10% mark where you're being obedient to God. And as you're kind of coming up the on-ramp and you're building up your speed, when you finally hit 10%, you're merging over into that first lane of traffic and you're now in obedience with the Lord, cruising along, and God loves that. God loves to see his children step into faithful obedience with him. Now, he also doesn't want to leave you there. And as you start to walk in obedience with the Lord when it comes to generosity, he's going to grow your heart even more for, to, of worship and generous spirit towards him. And he's going to start moving you over into faster lanes of traffic, right? And he's going to keep moving you over until he gets you all the way over in the left lane with the top down and the radio up and cruising down the way with the Lord, right? Like he loves to see his children grow in generosity. But the first step is obedience, 10%. That's where we start. <clears throat> somebody, I heard this, somebody say this one time, and it's just been super helpful for me throughout the years as a great reminder. If you're struggling with the 10% idea, let me just share this with you. I've seen this true. We've seen this true. I know many others in our church could say the same thing. 90% with me and God is more than 100% with me on my own. Every time. Right? You think, if I give this 10% up, I'm going to have less. And I'm gonna... Trust me. God is a giver. And 90% with me and God goes way further than 100% with me on my own. It just means trusting the Lord and stepping out in obedience. So that's the first level. Second level, look at verse 14. It says, Moreover, from that time I was appointed to their to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of our Xerxes, the king. Twelve years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Second level of generosity that God remembers is sacrificial generosity. Sacrificial. Here, Nehemiah says, I was governor for 12 years, and the whole time I took no food allowance. Okay? What he means by that was, as governor, part of his compensation for his duties of running the area was to take a tax or a food tax, if you will, from the people to cover his expenses. He says, but all the governors before me, they abused that. And they laid, a, they laid a burden on the people that was too heavy, that they couldn't handle, that it was too much. And so they were selfish leaders, and I'm not going to do it. So, so I did not do so for 12 years. He forfeited his right to compensation in order to be loving and sacrificial towards his people. Sacrificial generosity. He says, me and my people... We worked on the walls. We weren't going around. We weren't wasting our time going around collecting taxes. And doing all. We were working on the project that God had given us to do. He said, we acquired no land. I wasn't trying to build up my little, you know, empire here. I wasn't trying to, you know, build up my own portfolio. I wasn't in it for profit, he says. I was in it to serve 
the Lord, and he did it sacrificially. Because of the fear of God. There it is again. This was about the Lord's mission and the Lord's glory. And Nehemiah's sacrifice was an act of worship. He was honoring God over himself. He was humbling himself to put God first instead of himself first. And so as I think about sacrificial generosity, again, just some practical handles for this. Here's just three marks of sacrificial generosity that I see um, in the church and in, in the scriptures. Number one, I give immediate gifts at my first opportunity. Give immediate gifts at my first opportunity. In other words, I write God's check first. Okay? When I get paid, when the money comes in, the first person that I give to, the first person that it goes out to is the Lord. Making sure that he gets the first fruits. If I wait until the end and I pay all the other bills first and something comes up short, I don't want God's money to be the one that was sacrificed. If something has to get sacrificed, it needs to be something else. And I can ensure that happens when I do God first, when I give to him first. Also, it means I don't come to God's, I don't come to church with God's money at my house. I make a priority. I make an urgency to get it to the Lord. Sure, I'll write God's check first, but I'm going to hold on to it till the end of the month just in case something comes up and I've still got, I've still got it if I need it. No, 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 no. Stepping out, trusting God, giving to him first and foremost what is his, and then trusting him the rest. We see him talk to the Israelites about this in Deuteronomy chapter 14, where he's basically, I'm not going to read the whole thing for time's sake, but you can go look at it, verses 22 through 29. And he just kind of presses on the people like, don't delay. Get your money to the temple. Get your, get your offerings to the temple as soon as possible. All right? Don't let it sit. Thankfully today, First of all, we don't have to go to a temple that's miles and miles away to give. Um, but even, we don't even have to wait for Sunday anymore, right? We got online giving. We got automatic giving. Like, you can be sure that your offering is going to the Lord immediately in multiple ways. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I send my treasure on ahead. Second mark of sacrificial giving is I send my treasure on ahead. This comes from the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When I value the Lord, and I value heaven more than this world and the things of this world, I send my treasure on ahead. I give sacrificially to the Lord, to his work, to his people, so that I know I'm not wasting my money on stuff of this world. I'm investing it for things to come that are going to be greater in the kingdom of God. You know, giving is like, it's like a spiritual thermometer. And it shows us how on fire our heart truly is for God. It shows us how much priority and how much 
emphasis we truly give the Lord in our lives. It shows up through our giving. And Jesus knows that, and that's what he's hitting on here in Matthew 6. The third and final part here, sacrificial giving, is anchored in worship of God, not self. It's all about worship. It's all about a heart. Again, we see examples throughout Scripture of people who miss it. I think about the Old Testament with Achan, right? The Jews go in, they conquer Jericho, they tear the whole thing down, and God tells them, all right, don't take any spoil. Leave it all there. It's all mine. Don't take any. But Achan, he had different ideas. <laughs> and so he, he grabs some stuff, and he takes it back to his tent, and he hides it, thinking that he's, he's going to get ahead. And it cost him. It cost his family. It cost the entire nation because of his selfish greed instead of being sacrificial towards the Lord. It was a heart issue. It was a worship issue. We just studied Acts this past year, right? Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They go and they sell their property, and they, bring, they actually bring an offering to the Lord. Like, all right, yeah, we're going to give an offering to God. Awesome. But they said they're going to give, they, what they gave was all of it, when in reality they actually kept some back for themselves. Because they were worshiping self more than they were worshiping the Lord. Sacrificial giving is a worship issue. It's a heart issue. It means I exalt God over my own wants and my own needs. So obedient, obedient generosity is that first level. That's the first lane. Sacrificial generosity is the second level. That's moving over into that next lane of traffic, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a little more in. I'm trusting God more. I'm worshiping God more. I'm, my hands are open. I'm letting him lead me on how to give and when to give and being uh, faithful in all of that. And it's taking me to that next level of generosity with the Lord. But there's one more level. Let me hit this real quick. Look at verse 17. It says, Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Third level is extravagant generosity. Extravagant generosity. Nehemiah says, I had 150 people at my table. That's a big table. Right? Like, Joanna Gaines' tables ain't got nothing on Nehemiah's table. Like, that is some serious big table. But this was the custom for the governor. He would entertain all of the dignitaries that came in from other, other areas around and, uh, and Jews that were traveling through and, and the officials of the area. So this was kind of part of the duties of him. But again, it says here that he did not take any of the food allowance to do it. Right? And, and I think what also is important here is that he covers all these, these names, right? Jews, officials, besides those who from other nations. It's like, listen, there was no distinction at my table. I didn't give more to some group and less to other group. Like, everybody who came, it was open. Because extravagant generosity doesn't look at distinction. I'm, I'm not only generous to people I like. Extravagant generosity is I'm generous to whoever God brings into my path and gives me opportunity to bless. So Nehemiah says, I did all this and prepared each day at my expense was one ox, six choice sheep, birds, and wine in abundance. So he's not skimping here, right? Like, he's going all out. He's given his best because extravagant generosity gives my best to the Lord 
not just the leftovers. And he says, I did not demand the food allowance. Nehemiah paid the grocery bill out of his own pocket. That's what that means. Now we know that because of his position back in Persia, he was probably fairly wealthy. He seems to have be pretty well to do. And he knew that, and so therefore he would rather give than receive. Because he knew that God had blessed him. Extravagant giving gives as the Lord blesses. Nehemiah had learned something that we all need to learn. You can't outgive God. That when we step out in extravagant generosity for the Lord, he will always provide. He says, I didn't take the food allowance because the service was too heavy on the people. Nehemiah's extravagant generosity put the community above himself. And then he ends with this phrase, which I think is so good. He says, remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. Again, that's the true heart of extravagant generosity. Love for the Lord and love for the people, and therefore, God, I'm following you whatever it takes. Remember, God. Remember what I've done for you and for your people. This, my friends, is the fast lane of the generosity highway. Completely trusting the Lord, cruising down the road, and getting to experience all the goodness of who he is and what he does when his people are extravagantly generous. This is God's ultimate heart for every one of his people. It's to get to this place. God will remember my generosity. No matter how little that is or how great that is, God will remember it. Because God is repelled by my greed, but remembers my generosity. So I think today, the task before us now is simply to personally, individually, wrestle down two questions. Number one, what lane am I in on God's generosity highway? What's that look like for you? Which lane are you driving in right now? And how can you walk with the Lord in such a way to maybe move over to the next lane? How can we grow in this? And then second question, how will God remember my generosity? One day we're all going to stand before the Lord and we're going to give an account for the way that we lived and stewarded the resources that he gave us. When that day comes, how is God going to remember your generosity? All of this, again, it starts with a heart of worship to the Lord. I don't want you walking out of here feeling guilty or obligated to give more because the pastor threw a bunch of verses at you today. I want you to do heart work with the Holy Spirit and say, God, where's my heart on this? How can I worship you more? How can I humble myself more? How can I bow before you and exalt your name with my generosity? Generosity flows from a heart that has God first. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning. Again, Lord, so thankful 
that you meet us here every Sunday. You're so faithful, Lord, to come and to fill our cups and to fill our hearts, Lord, with your word and with your song and with your, with your presence, God. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your generosity towards us, for your grace towards us, Lord, that you gave your only son to die for our sins so that we can know you, so that we can have salvation, that we can have eternity with you, God. You've given us the ultimate gift, Lord. You are the perfect example of overflowing, extravagant generosity. So, Lord, we want to be like you. (laughs) God, we want to be like you today. We want to reflect your generosity for your glory, for your kingdom. Lord, fill our hearts to be generous as you are generous. Lord, help us to be rooted in your love for others as we give in your name. Lord, we need you more than anything else in this world. So fill us up. We pray all this in Christ's name.